0: as they expected actually if your ceo plays golf the number of females is significantly lower in the board and they are paid significantly more shitty (laughs) so uh i knew it golfers totally suck (laughs) just kidding no and actually they they say in the paper it's a correlation not a causation yeah so
1: This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally-ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, In beautiful Fallendar, Germany, this is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors and educators and the stories that make them who they are today. Hey, folks, welcome back to the most awesome founder podcast and another of our inspiration sessions where we discuss current topics that made us think learn, and laugh. Of course, this wouldn't be possible with my podcasting partner, Professor Dries Foms, who is once again joining us today. Hi, Dries, it's good to do this again, man. It's uh, We've had some really awesome guests these uh, these past few weeks, but you know, I have a soft spot for <laughs> uh, our point-counterpoint uh, discussions because, um, frankly, at this stage in my life, I probably wouldn't be uh, so, current on the interesting academic literature that's coming out, and you always seem to bring some interesting papers into the equation.
0: No, looking forward to another interesting discussion.
1: Cool. Well, um, as usual, we like to start with something that made us learn. So, why don't I uh, pass the mic to you and uh, you kick things off? I'm curious to see what you've uh, got in your pocket. Yes. Yeah,
0: so, and I deliver on my promises in that respect, so I brought another academic paper, actually one that was published earlier this year in Strategic Management Journal, and the title is Blinded by the Person, Experimental Evidence from ID Evaluation, which was co-authored by Linus Dallander, Arna Thomas, Martin Wallin, and Rebecca Angstström. And as the title suggests, this is a paper on the topic of ID evaluation. So, in a lot of context, I think people evaluate ideas, I think about pitching competitions, but also within companies, we often see that nowadays companies organize innovation challenges and then people have to evaluate ideas. And in the end, the best ideas will be picked. They might get some funding for further development or they might get an award, whatever they get now, what we know, and this is nothing new that's quite established in academic research is that when people have to evaluate ideas, they might face a lot of cognitive biases. Uh, Maybe based on your experience, Gareth, what what would you think? Or when you have to evaluate ideas, for instance, pitching competitions, what what do you think are the most dominant cognitive biases that you might face? What might kind of uh, implicitly influence you in your decision-making, in your grading? If you have to do that. I mean, Hmm.
1: you know, I'm always thinking about how I'm assessing my own ideas, but how do I assess others? Um, it's interesting because I'm not sure I, especially in those type of competitions, I'm not looking as much at the ideas. I'm looking at the, the people that are executing those ideas, Mm -hmm. but I mean, I, I think inherently there's some confirmation bias, you know, that, that comes into play. Um, I guess maybe the one that I, I think of the most is like, uh, apophenia as a bias, right? Like where I'm thinking that correlations are actually causations, mm-hmm. right? Where something is kind of, uh, two dots are connected and you kind of, especially if the, the narrative and the story behind it is very compelling and, uh, the person presenting it comes with a, a, a good kind of sense of expertise. Can tend to take that as as causation um yeah i mean yeah. i i'm sure there's tons of i'd like to say that i don't <laughs> have the traditional biases you know and what what would you say as a traditional kind of, bias
0: what, what would you think of
1: well i mean i think the the ones people think about the most when you think of bias especially selection of humans you think of uh you know discriminatory mm-hmm. biases yeah. based on gender nationality whatever yeah. a- ageism i mean there's there's a ton that can come into play and and many of them are even subconscious so i think i've learned over the years not to say i don't have any biases i just say that i try yeah. to mitigate the ones and be aware of them as they unfold yeah.
0: and indeed this paper focuses on quite traditional biases like gender bias but also bias in terms of a location of people. So are people located in the same geographic area than you or in different geographic areas, or even in the same unit as you or different ones. Um, and traditionally um, how have companies have tried to solve this, or even in the like, world and, and a straightforward way to solve that kind of uh, potential risks of biases is to make the person that submits the idea anonymous so that you simply mm-hmm. do not give information to the evaluator about the person that has submitted the idea and so the mm-hmm. the kind of the common assumption is by anonymizing the person that kind of biases can be ruled out and that will give a kind of fair more fair judgment so what the authors in this paper did was actually to test okay is that really true so do we see that if you anonymize ideas. So if you do not give, um, personal information to the evaluator, does that change the evaluation? And they did that in a kind of uh, academic way. So they created randomly, they attributed ideas to people. And so randomly they gave personal information like the gender and the location. And sometimes they didn't give the information so that they could see, okay, if we give the same idea to people, but one time without the information and one time with the information, does that change the evaluation in a significant way? And the interesting thing of this study was they find no single effect. Actually, anonymizing the ideas did not change any evaluation. So they could not find significant differences in terms of gender, in terms of location, Uh, between the group that received anonymized information and the group that received all information. So actually they had to come to the conclusion, uh, maybe this type of bias is less influential than we think, because apparently we cannot find a significant difference in the evaluations between people that received all the information and people that only received the ID information. Um, So that for me was quite an interesting finding and actually what I really liked as an academic was that this is a paper with no single significant effect, uh, which still Mm. got published in a top level journal, which is actually quite rare. Uh, So typically uh, as, as a researcher, you're looking for significant relationships because you want to tell something new. And this was a paper that was accepted without any significant relationship. And, but still, I think quite interesting findings, namely actually uh, when we are evaluating ideas, the gender and uh, the location do, might not actually matter that much than we might have thought.
1: Hmm. It, it's interesting. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack in what you just said. I mean, one being is the fact that the paper got Mm -hmm. published, which, which maybe brings in a bias in itself, which is the confirmation (laughs) bias. And, you know, because it's sending the message that I think like people want to hear, right? That like, there is no correlation. And I, and I, I think there's also, you know, there is this kind of narrative that, entrepreneurship and innovation is is a meritocracy right and and whoever has the best idea and the biggest innovation it it, nothing else particularly matters i'm not sure i totally buy into that but i mean what do you think the lesson learned i mean to me from a a practice standpoint if i was assessing uh you know like you said a pitch competition or, or something along those lines um anonymizing anonymizing the whoever's whoever the pitcher is or the idea generator is um really prevents an, an actually good analysis because if that's the people that potentially have to execute on the yeah. idea that is a key variable that it, that's kind of being yeah. missed so looking at it, an idea in a vacuum um is kind of the classic misnomer of uh you know ideas or everything yeah. when i think i think other, other research and other practice has shown otherwise. So I'm curious, I mean, I think it's an interesting, uh, topic to to talk about, but what do you think the practical relevance of this is like, do you find that there's something that there's a takeaway that, um, we can, we can yeah, think so about for me, There are two that?
0: takeaways. The first is that actually I see maybe not that much in the startup context, but in other contexts, like. When governments organize this kind of competitions or, or companies, they often put a lot of effort. And to be honest, also, they invest quite some money in trying to make the process as fair as possible. And there, actually, indeed, a, 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 a certain dimension of fairness will be to anonymize the identity of um, the person who submits the idea. And so, what this paper seems to suggest is maybe these are simply sunk costs. And so, they you're you're investing money in trying to solve something that actually doesn't have an impact. Uh, and maybe you can spend that money that you're trying that you're spending on trying to make it as fair as possible. You might actually uh, want to spend it in a different way to address more important issues. So, for me, that that's the first important learning. A second is more uh, related to the paper wanting. I I was still wondering was, if you look at the paper, the people that evaluate do not really have skin in the game. So, for instance, in contrast to when you have to make decisions, do I invest in a certain startup? These people just had to rate ideas, but whether they give a high rating or a low rating in the end, for them personally, it doesn't make any difference. And so I was thinking, if there would be skin in the game, would you then not be more likely to see biases? because then the decision making becomes much more influential. So that was something where I was wondering, and which I think would actually I think would be interesting follow- up research, if I really uh, will benefit or will be hampered by the outcomes of the idea, maybe then I might be more kind of uh, sensitive to biases than in this case, where, actually uh, the outcome of my selection has not really implications for me personally
1: mm-hmm. you know it's I, when I think of participating in you know uh programs like selection I'm on the selection committee of a number of yeah. accelerators right and i'm I'm looking at at these concepts and yeah usually we see the we usually see who the founders are and, and um there is absolutely a bias in play when i'm looking at like founders pitching their ventures but it's not it's very rarely i mean for me personally i almost have a bias for the underrepresented mm. um because there's a bit of a, a a hustle and a grit that oftentimes comes along with uh, with those folks but where i find I certainly see some biases in what their backgrounds and what their experiences are. And I tend to give greater weight to someone that has, uh, has the experience before, but I find I have a lot of biases embedded within the ideas themselves. Like I am always, I, I tend to be attracted to business models that I'm yep. familiar with. Yep. Right. Um, where, and I mean, I don't know if you call it a bias even at that point, but um you know having built a marketing tech company before when i see interesting marketing tech businesses like i i tend to favor them if i don't if i can't poke a hole in them right away i i tend to to favor them because i like that i like that particular vertical you know so i think this is i guess just when we're talking about biases yeah. at, a, at a high level like the submitter of the bias like you said if it's a competition you know i think if you're I've seen these like competitions for like a, a, a jingle or a catchphrase or a logo or something where really people can select, you know, those biases can be very strong based on the person Not. that is, is submitting them if they come from another country or another background. But um, but when I think of innovation ideas, um, I tend, I guess the, for me, the biases come from somewhere. Yeah. And actually
0: the bias that you mentioned, uh, which is called the expertise bias has been shown in research. So it's has been shown that if you need to evaluate an idea that is closer to your own expertise, domain, that you tend to give a more favorable rating than when you have to evaluate an idea that is much farther away from your domain of expertise. So that's definitely something that's, that it's another type of bias that was not addressed in this research that can play around. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I guess, uh, mitigating selection bias by having the evaluators be as diverse and broad as possible, maybe plays a role in that too, but yeah, that's a tough, that's a tough hurdle to, to overcome, to eliminate, eliminate biases, especially in uh, subjective, uh, decision making. Right. Interesting. Interesting. But yeah, I, I, I do appreciate the idea that, um, you know you we think so much that science is about um, you know these aha hmm. moments and and finding finding grand results that are unexpected, but the fact that um, results that are pretty mundane that we had hoped for also have meaning, I think that's hmm. a there's a pretty nice lesson in there too all right i'm uh I'm gonna go <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm bringing in a topic that is rather far out of my domain of expertise, but quite deep into your domain. So so
0: I should like it by definition.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe, I don't know. Um, But, uh, it's, it's once again, I think it's a topic that keeps coming up for us over and over again, but it's the topic of artificial Mm. intelligence and, uh, and machine learning. Um, and there was a, uh. And as usual, I'm not pulling from academic literature. I'm pulling from uh, the New York Times <laughs> um, but actually from just like five days okay. ago. So um, there was a, a really interesting article in The Times that was that's titled "Can AI Invent?" And it's by the author Steve lore. And essentially, what he was the the thesis of it is that uh, can an individual use artificial intelligence to invent something Mm. and then protect it as intellectual property so this i had no idea but this has become a very very big Mm. topic with governments around the world with the us uh taking a lot of action just within the past couple months on on this particular subject so uh in 2023 So far in the first half of 2023 alone, the uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has hosted two separate events that they're calling the AI Inventorship Listening Sessions, and they're essentially trying to get input from the public and expertise on this topic. The reason they organized those sessions is there was a a federal court decision last year called Taller versus Vidal, which... uh, which said that a patent inventor must be a natural person, but it didn't address whether inventions made by human beings with the assistance mm. of AI are eligible for patent protection, right? So um, the, the author brought in a, a, a pretty interesting uh, person into the equation, uh, a gentleman named uh, Dr. Ryan Abbott, who's a professor at the uh, University of Surrey Law School. Um, and a founder of a group called the Artificial In- Inventor Project. And what he's been doing has been filing dozens of like pro bono test cases around the world, trying to seek legal protection for AI generated inventions. And his whole argument is that, um, you know, AI, you know, if you think of the kind of traditional tools of invention, Right? It might be paint or pencils. It might be a microscope. Um, AI is, is somewhat different mm-hmm. um, because it's not confined to doing things um, that the tool is specifically programmed to do, but it does create unscripted results, nevertheless. Right. So it's, you know, he's basically saying that it's kind of the tool itself is stepping into the shoes of the person. Um, and he's basically, his, his whole thesis is that without patent protection, AI innovations will essentially be kind of hidden in the world of, of trade secrets rather than being disclosed in a public filing, mm-hmm. which in the end slows down progress of entire industries or, or domains themselves. So it, there's this kind of interesting concept of is ai the inventor or is ai the tool of the inventor yeah. so let's start with a guy that's been doing a lot of inventing with ai <laughs> lately from uh from uh your very busy linkedin profile has made that quite evident and all the cool uh you know i've been loving your uh, your slack group as well There's some really interesting stuff coming out of that shameless plug <laughs> yes um <laughs> But do you, but for you, Dries, like, do you think AI inventions should be protectable by patent? I would say yes,
0: because, and I think you need to go to the, the fundamental, how do patent offices grant patents? Yeah. So if you have a new invention and you want to get a patent on it, which means you will have a kind of monopoly to commercialize that invention for a certain number of years. Uh, Patent offices use a number of criteria. I think the most important one is novelty. So you need to be able to demonstrate that your invention is novel, that you are the first one to invent something that nobody has invented before. And I think uh, the current generative AI systems are indeed able to generate novelty. So I would say I think they can meet that criterion. I would not agree here with uh, the person you mentioned that that talked about this issue about, are they specifically programmed to do so? Because there I would say even generative AI is programmed to do a specific task, namely uh, for instance, JetGPT in the end, it's a system that is programmed to predict the next word in a sentence. So for me it is still programmed to do a specific task, but I think by doing that, it can generate novel outputs.
1: But I think this is the fundamental Mm -hmm. question, right? You just said it can generate novel outputs, at least in the law in the US, it says inventions must be created by natural persons. So the question is, is, is the AI creating the invention? Or is the person that is prompting or programming the AI creating, you know, actually creating that invention?
0: I think it heavily depends on the prompt, Mm not. Because if I would prompt generate me something novel, then it's the AI generating something. But if I create a much more extensive prompt that's kind of, Let's the AI just do the dirty work. So I think it heavily depends on the on the prompting. Uh, which the yeah, way. but that may,
1: isn't that an interesting conundrum, though? Right, because then we're we have to start asking ourselves: Is who is the tool and who is the yeah. inventor? Right. <laughs> in some case, the the way when you think of prompts in that term, maybe it's the human that's the tool and the AI is the yeah. inventor. Huh? Right. If you're kind of providing, um, you know, I was thinking one of the reasons that made this article kind of stick with me is someone posted in your your slack group the other day about prompts for startup idea generation Mm -hmm. right and and i'm thinking okay um i have no idea how i would utilize that (laughs) but um but i i found it interesting Mm -hmm. and i i said okay if and then i read this article and i'm like if i prompt you know whatever chat gpt to say tell me give me the best startup ideas for Mm. x and it presented something whose idea is it like am i just am i and and i find something in there that i decide i want to to execute on or whatnot i mean nowadays when you think about it even more interestingly how how ai is writing Mm. code right like now is that is that code base protectable Is it yours to protect?
0: Yeah, and and even more problematic, the way in which AI produces that code is because it has read a lot of code of other people. Um, So then you always come to the question, to what extent should the people that have written the original code be acknowledged in your code? Although it's often almost impossible to recognize which code snippets AI exactly used to produce the new code. So that's... Okay. I think a big legal struggle that <laughs> nobody knows the answer at the moment. Uh, but, but you see it in a lot of domains. I, I, I listened to the, the daily podcast from the New York Times and there they were talking about that actually comedians were now suing AI because, mm-hmm. uh, for instance, it was Sarah Silverman, one of the more famous US comedians who was mm-hmm. saying like, look, if I type in, write me a joke as Sarah Silverman, the AI can perfectly do that, but it means it is actually using my intellectual property to write Sarah Silverman jokes, which makes my personal contribution less valuable. Yeah, Because if people can just imitate me, I as a person might become less valuable and I should be compensated for that uh, by companies like OpenAI. So I think... We are just at the starting point of very difficult legal discussions where, to be honest, nobody knows at the moment in which direction we will go.
1: Well, this is an interest. I mean, what you just brought up with the comedian, it's almost like AI is turning uh, us into avatars Mm. of ourselves, right? Like, it can generate our personas and our own uh, value and our own intellectual property without even us doing it ourselves. That's... uh, yeah, that is a little bit <laughs> unnerving. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> I mean, I did I did see something the other day about like, you know, what AI is doing for, I mean, it was about pornography, mm, yeah. right? And how like AI is generating pornography with well-known personas mm. that is literally indistinguishable from those people themselves. And there is absolutely no no recourse for it. And it's interesting to even thinking about, okay, they're going to sue open AI, but as open AI, again, it, there's an accountability question yeah. that come comes into yeah. play, right? Like, are they accountable for that? At what point is it uh, uh, operating on its own, right? You create a tool, tools can be used in negative, negative ways, right? It's like if someone kidnaps somebody and takes them on a airplane like is it the airplane's Uh, fault uh, and it's uh mm, these philosophical questions are going to get i think more and more common and and louder
0: and louder no and i think the fundamental question is do we need new legislation to deal with this specific ai case or can we leverage existing legislation and just apply it on ai for instance you could say if if you abuse ai to make a pornographic movie of somebody else I think with existing legislation, you can already litigate that, um, but I can also see cases where AI is so specific that we really would need specific legislation to deal with it.
1: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's always, there's still a human element, Mm. right? If you ask an AI to create porn about a, a famous person, um, and then you actually utilize, publish, or try to monetize that that piece that you created, then certainly there's a clear liability mm-hmm. in place. But um, I mean, is there a protection for someone that just wants to ask questionably ethical or legal things to the AI? Is it only what they do with it or what they allow it to mm-hmm. create as well, right? Uh, where does intent come into play? Like, you know, so much of the So much of the law, I think, has to do with intent. Mm -hmm. Um and with AI, there is not necessarily, at least from the AI side, there's not necessarily an intent. There is just,
0: you know, calculation. Yeah, in the end, uh, these AI systems are simply statistical systems that are very good in predicting the next word in a sentence. That's how they are trained. That's that's all they do. Um So to what extent can you make that kind of systems liable for being abused for pornographic movies? That's a big (laughs) question.
1: Indeed. Indeed. I I can tell you one thing since I've been digging more and more into AI, my God, I can almost not open Instagram anymore. (laughs) It's just one influencer after the other, throwing out new AI tools, do this and tie it to this and take your prompt and put it into this and it's it's uh, you know, I thought web three was madness. Mm. This is next level madness. Right? Yeah. Like it's like the, the whole world is, everybody sees this as like the big gold rush and everyone's chasing after it. And unfortunately, usually in the gold rush, you don't always get the best actors. You get the people looking for opportunity.
0: Yeah.
1: All right, let's, uh, let's pivot to something that made you think. This week, Dries
0: Yes, and I, I brought another paper with me because that, that's my role, I suppose. Um, <laughs> that is kind of your shtick, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, and actually it's it's another one also related to gender again, and, and I just I, I was intrigued even by the title already, so that, that's what triggered me. So the title is Hitting the Grass Ceiling, Golfing CEOs, Exclusionary Schema and Career Outcomes for Female Executives. And this is a paper published in Journal of Management this year by uh, Lee Biggestaff, uh Johanna Campbell, and Bradley Goldie. And so this is a paper, as the title suggests, that tries to make a connection between uh, your CEO play, playing golf and to what extent uh, females in your company are underrepresented. And so this is an empirical paper. And the question that they wanted to ask themselves is actually if if a CEO, what this person is doing outside of his or her work, in this case, his work, because they looked at male CEOs. So what he is doing outside of his working environment, to what extent might that have an impact on uh, decisions within the company? And so for this study, they focused on a very specific potential hobby of male CEOs, namely playing golf. And so what they simply did was collecting data on CEOs and to check whether they played golf or not, which you can do actually quite accurately because if you play golf, you're registered formally in all kinds of stuff. And then they could mm-hmm. see, okay, if the CEO plays golf, what is the impact on the amount of females that are present in the executive board? And what kind of impact does that have also on the compensation on the, of these females? And mm-hmm. as they expected, actually... If your CEO plays golf, the number of females is significantly lower in the board and they are paid significantly more shitty. (laughs) So, uh, I knew it golfers totally suck. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding, no, and actually, they they say in the paper it's a correlation, not a causation. Yeah, so that's (laughs) that's the first important thing, but still. Uh, they 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 see that uh, if your golf, if your CEO plays golf, that's a very good predictor of whether uh, females are underrepresented in your company and whether they are underpaid. And the explanation there is that actually golf is a very uh, exclusionary sport. So it's still a kind of sport where you don't have a lot of women. And so the, the reasoning of uh, the authors is that if you are doing that, uh, if you're kind of active in that kind of setting where it's kind of socially accepted that females are excluded that might also translate to your company setting and you might actually find it easier more easily to not have a lot of women on your board and pay them less that was their uh, explanation mm. which I thought was mm. uh, so I thought it was very creative research very interesting research but it, it made me think, namely, it made me think like, if you look at the context in which we are active, namely the startup context, we also see mm-hmm. a lot of underrepresentation of female entrepreneurs. Um, that's still a very big issue. I think also this year, again, a lot of reports have emerged where the number of female entrepreneurs is still depressingly low in Europe. And so I was thinking. Could we find similar kind of exclusionary activities of founders that might kind of um, accelerate this or strengthen this? So are there founder activities that push male founders to be, it will not be golf, but are there similar things that might actually push them uh, in this kind of exclusionary schemas? before I, I share my ideas, do do you have any ideas about?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, a few months ago, I gathered quite a few uh, founder friends. Um, and actually most of which have been on this podcast at one time or another. And just for a, a catch-up, and we went to Vellenwerk, which is a uh, an indoor surf mm-hmm. wave here. And uh, there was a group of us, and it was fun. We went surfing and uh, had a great time. And um, when we all got together, we were kind of laughing. We are like, oh, my God, this, this feels like the worst tech bro thing we've all ever done. And uh, Daniel Hahnemann, um, who is w- one of them, he was like, oh, bro, you have not even... Uh, if you haven't been to the cl- the climbing gym in Bolt in uh, Berlin, that's where you would really see it. It's where like all of the kind of VC funded <laughs> entrepreneurs like to go hang out. Um, again, just like golf, I don't think a climbing wall or a surf wave needs to be you know exclusive to men. I don't think it has the historical cultural connotations of golf, yeah. like the where like you know, where the masters is played at Augusta was men only until a decade or two ago. Um, but I do think there is a, maybe a a tendency towards more traditionally masculine activities. I mean, I, I see a lot of founder teams and going with, even with their investors to sporting events, for example, which again, can be open to everybody, but tends to be a bit more male. Um, but the one thing that I experience, and I'm, I don't want to deflect from the importance of of gender representation, but the one that I've felt a lot mm-hmm. myself is drinking yeah. culture. So I'm not really a, a drinker. I very rarely drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. But so much of the activity around the, the startup scene, investor meetings uh, involve, all right, let's go out and have drinks, or let's meet for drinks, and um so i do think there are some kind of cultural uh you know markers that exist in this space that can be exclusionary in to a number of of different groups um i'm not sure that doesn't exist in in everything but uh but i do i'm a big uh uh, I'm a big believer in the douchey tech bro scene that exists everywhere where like entrepreneurship exists. And, you know, I would love to chop that off at the knees if possible.
0: Yeah, but actually these were exactly also the two that I was thinking about. So what I see is you have a lot of founders that engage in quite extreme sporting activities. And then there's also this thing about, and uh, they go together to clubs, drinking late in the evening. And I think, yeah, these these can be quite exclusionary activities that that at least make it not easier for women to uh, become uh, kind of embedded in this founder community. Um, so Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, I mean, I, I think golf differs from the others too, because I think some of the things we're talking about tends to be the domain of somewhat younger people. Um, actually a lot of female founders I know tend to be into slightly more extreme okay. sports. I think there's maybe a, there's maybe a correlation there of risk nah. tolerance that exists. You know, one of the the ladies on my team right now just leaves tomorrow for the Azores to go, uh, para paragliding, <laughs> right. Um, that's just one example. I just, I, I think there is maybe some tendencies to those types of things. Um, but what what's interesting about this paper is we're talking about CEOs yep. of large, arguably larger companies, which tend to infer uh, an older, yep. an older demographic as well. And uh, you know, my my mother, who's almost eighty, always asks me if I want to play golf, and I give her the okay. same answer: is I'll I'll play golf with her when I'm too old to do anything <laughs> fun. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I I think we do we could all do a better job of of creating more inclusive opportunities you know i i would even you know narrow it down a little bit like even with my companies when i've tried to do events and retreats and stuff it it wasn't i don't recall ever doing anything that felt maybe exclusive to to men versus Mm. women but i would say Oftentimes, I chose activities and events that my engineering teams were less keen on doing because they tended to be outdoors and more active. And you know, not to generalize, but there were definitely some people on my engineering teams were not really into outdoor, (laughs) you know, active physical activities and whatnot. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's something to think about. But I'm curious, just on this topic, like, what do you know about? You know this is a huge topic in the u s for sure about women representation at executive levels. And then you look at parts of Europe where, like in the Nordics, for example, where they have mandated yeah. uh, representation um, and oftentimes equal representation at those levels. Um, do you know anything about how that is in Germany? and you know, is Germany lagging behind? or do you have any insights? and what are your thoughts on um, the kind of legal mandate for, for 50, 50,
0: I think, um, and to be honest, I'm not an expert and, but as I understand it in Germany, it is not obliged, um, but it's kind of, um, recommended, let's say it like that. Um, but so it's not like in the Nordics where there is kind of now legislation. So you don't have that in Germany, but there is a kind of, for instance, I think, If you do not have females on your board, you need to explicitly explain that in your annual statements or something like that. So you then are at least forced to give an explanation of why you don't have them. Um, So there is definitely a push, but no obligation for us, as far as I know. Um, That's, I think, is the situation at the moment in Germany. Gotcha.
1: So the lesson we take away from this is, ladies, learn
0: to play golf. <laughs> nah, I think we should not don't do, do that. Shoes of that. the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> I know that
1: was that was a terrible <laughs> thing to say. Of course, of course, I don't mean that. But um, sometimes you have to make humor of. <laughs> such ridiculous things <laughs> if if golf ends up being the driver of success in our you know, I'll, I'll actually tell you a funny story because um i had a uh i loosely call a friend but a guy that i grew up with and um he was uh i i, I don't know how to put it that anyway, he was incredibly handsome he was just a, a, a he was like a, a movie star handsome mm. guy i would say he wasn't the sharpest marble in the bag either <laughs> Um, but he was a, uh, like a ranked, like a top, top golfer and he never did well in school. He scraped his way through uni, um, actually on a golf scholarship. (laughs) And, um, and we always wondered like, what was going to happen to him? And the joke is, you know, now he's in his forties, but we call, we always called him a corporate (laughs) whore because he was essentially his every job he got was with a a pretty big company and he would be like a uh customer liaison and he would literally go out and play golf with with these high-end customers so that's pretty much all he did was i think drink scotch (laughs) and play golf and make sure his hair looked really nice (laughs) and and he has become quite financially well off as a result of it but the fact that you know when you when you shared this it just made me think of him and was like wow this this social activity this sport Mm -hmm. is actually embedded strategically in the cultures of a lot of companies now one might argue that he was being sent to meet with customers to play golf who were also male and maybe the utilitarian approach would be to have a, a stunningly beautiful woman playing golf with them, but um, maybe that's co- that's crossing <laughs> even further boundaries <laughs> by doing that. Cool, that was a, a thought-provoking topic indeed, Dries. Who knew that golf would elicit such a conversation? <laughs> All right, I'm going to uh, I'm going to share a, a paper that or an article that came out actually last year. So it's a bit dated, but it's a topic that's been on my mind for quite a while. And it was written by one of our former guests, uh, the immutable Steve Blank. And he wrote this paper last year for the Harvard Business Review. And it's entitled, Entrepreneurs, Is a Venture Studio Right for You? So says, you know, I've kind of spent the past few years fiddling around in the, the venture building, venture studio space. Um, and to be honest, like with multiple touch points now, I would say these experiences have left me with a lot more questions than they have okay. answers in terms of their, their efficacy, their value, their value proposition to entrepreneurs. Um... And reading this paper was, I think, great, because it made me realize that I'm probably not alone in this thought, um, since a luminary like Steve uh, was pondering it as well. So the, the paper really kind of talks about, it starts by talking about the different types of startup support programs, uh, most notably accelerators, incubators, and uh, and venture studios. So... For those folks that don't really understand the difference, um, accelerators are usually fixed-term programs. Um, They have a specific curriculum to them. They um, might offer a physical space for the startups uh, to to work in, it tends to be early stage ventures, and it comes with some form of capital contribution in many cases. Um, in the VEHAU case, it doesn't, it comes with other value add like networks and access to investors and things, but there is somewhat of a, uh, in most cases, somewhat of a transactive environment. Accelerators uh, tend to crank out uh, support to a lot of startups per year, um, take a small piece of them and you know, hope for a return. Uh, incubators are similar. They tend to be longer term, longer duration. The physical space is more central to it, and it is less uh, common that they provide capital. They provide uh, sometimes technical or mentor advisory support, and they kind of create a space and an ecosystem where, these, uh, where ventures can kind of nurture, be nurtured or nurtured themselves. Um, they can crank out quite a few uh companies per year as well um but they tend to be longer term so less than accelerators the venture studio model is i would say notably different from all of them because in this case it's not external companies coming in with ideas but the venture studio itself is ideating Mm. or coming up with uh, startup concepts and then they're doing their due diligence and their discovery and they're validating those ideas. Once they find a, uh, an idea that they have validated, they then recruit founders to take that idea and essentially go to market with it. Um, that means they nurture them for much, much longer and they provide those founders support. Uh, they tend to come with pretty significant capital along the way um and uh and yeah they they're really kind of holding the i would say more than holding the the founder's hands but really acting as as partners Mm -hmm. um the probably the most significant piece is the equity stake for the founders that are listening incubators since there's not much capital they take very very little if anything um accelerators uh, a marginal amount. It could be anywhere from five to ten or fifteen percent. Um, in the venture studio model, it's much mm. more significant. And you know the range Steve Blank talks about is thirty to eighty percent. Mm. Um, what I have experienced is usually at least in in Europe somewhere around twenty five to fifty percent. Although if you would throw something like Rocket Internet in the mix, where they're putting tens of millions or hundreds of millions in, like they did in the old days, they were taking much much larger percentage so the uh the interesting the couple interesting points i want to share before i want to ask you a question is after reading that paper i did a little bit of research i wanted to understand what are the efficacy of Mm -hmm. these things and when you look at the the irr or the the rate of return on investment uh the venture studio model as compared to accelerator or traditional VC tends to be two to three times greater than a more traditional startup investment. So the ROI on them uh, seems mm-hmm. to be good. So their ability to mitigate risk uh, seems to be a lot stronger. Um, the fundamental challenge I would say is, you know, can you bring in entrepreneurs with a much weaker value proposition, which brings me to the last point that I wanted to make. there are s- somewhere around a thousand uh, known established venture studios that exist in the world with over fifty percent of them in Europe. Mm. I'm curious, I have my <laughs> ideas. there was no data on this, but Dries, why do you think Europe dominates this scene? Why would? Can you envision why more than half, when way more of the startup activity in the world happens outside Mm -hmm. of Europe, why is this model something that the the European uh, investor market has taken such a strong liking to?
0: Now, my intuition would be, and it's it's simply my intuition would be that this kind of models are attractive for more kind of risk-averse people, so I would say in general, in Europe, we are more risk averse. Uh, we, we don't go for shooting at the moon, but for something reasonable. And so I think a lot of people with kind of entrepreneurial ambitions in Europe would find this a much more comfortable situation uh, where you have a kind of corporate that is kind of still paying you like a salary, but at the same time you can be entrepreneurial Uh, And at the same time for the corporate, this kind of entrepreneurship tends to be a bit closer to their current activities. It's not really like the disruptive, completely breakthrough things that are far away from them. So I think both from the corporate perspective, but also from the entrepreneurship perspective, this is a model that is a bit more in line with our more risk averse attitude, I would say. But that's my intuition. I don't know. Maybe you have a totally different idea, but that would be my intuition. I would tend to
1: agree. I would tend to agree. I mean, I I could make some assumptions about, you know, management Mm -hmm. culture being a little bit different and and top down, maintaining control a little bit longer, but I think the risk aversion part is is pretty bang on. Uh, I think one thing to think about is, you know, Steve Blank basically describes that there are four main types of venture Mm -hmm. studios. You can kind of put them in four different buckets. The first one is tech transfer Mm -hmm. studios. I find that very interesting because I would argue that Europe is lagging no. behind massively when it comes to university tech no. transfer. Um, I'm actually not familiar with any tech transfer venture studios uh, in, in mainland, uh, in Germany, at least. Um, maybe maybe there are, where they're actually, their whole strategy is to identify IP coming out of the university and and commercialize it in that model.
0: Um, do you? Do you no, I think... Unternehmertum in Munchen also does that, I think. Mm-hmm. So I think at least mm-hmm. in the the in the Munchen ecosystem, there are this kind of things, but I'm also not that up-to-date about it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, I know there's a lot of great activity happening in Germany because a, a bunch of smart people in our ecosystem have realized that they've been lagging behind and our universities are doing some great stuff. But um, all the examples that Steve Blank uses no. are, are from the US. Um, The second one, which is one that I'm quite familiar with, is corporate venture studios, right? So um, there's kind of two different ways to look at that. One is sourcing the ideas and the intellectual property from inside of the company. The other one is maybe perhaps the more um, kind of what we did or maybe what BCGDV or McKinsey Leap were doing before, which was uh, basically taking an external approach to the corporate and kind of bringing in bright entrepreneurial minds to identify opportunities that you know gets very difficult to see when you're focused on your core um then there's of course the the niche studio which i think is is quite an interesting one that might be a a studio that's focused on generating ip in a very specific Mm. domain and one of the examples that he brought up is flagship pioneering Which is is a healthcare one, and you know that incubated LS18, which later became known as Moderna. So that's one hell of a venture studio output. Uh, and then the fourth example he uses, which is that the industry agnostic studio. That that I would say is what I see the most of in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, and his example, of course, is Rocket yeah. Internet. You know, so um, these industry agnostic studios, I think, are interesting. Um, and there are more and more of them popping up or even the niche ones kind of fall into the same bucket hey um there is uh there's this ai boom let's build a venture studio for ai or web3 or longevity or whatever whatever that might be what i think about that as a founder what the value proposition is right and as i said earlier comes with more capital comes with more support comes with less equity than you would if you were doing it in the wild. What do you think is compelling about that offer for entrepreneurs?
0: I think it depends on the type of entrepreneur. So I think this, this really high risk taking entrepreneur that wants to create the next uh, unicorn. I th- think about uh, Roman Kirsch that we uh, interviewed in the uh, recently. I think he would not be a guy <laughs> that could work in in a venture studio um, but I think other people that that are like the people you know I would say people with a consulting background but that have kind of the, the need to be a bit more creative, then I think for them, this kind of setting works quite nicely because they will have more freedom and autonomy to show entrepreneurship, but at the same time, they will still be working in a context that, that is familiar to them and that gets, gives them mm-hmm. some level of safety and, and control that, that they might want to have. So that's, that, that would be my feeling.
1: I, I think you nailed it, right, is and I think it comes back to what you talked about earlier, which is this concept yeah. of risk, right, you know, um, what I've seen um, through my subjective N of one experience is that the, the founders that are going into build ventures in venture studios, um, they tend to be a little bit older, they may have yeah. families, they may have other responsibilities, you know, you plug into a venture studio, good chance you start collecting a salary right away, you get resources, you don't have to spend months or more going out trying to raise capital, going from, you know, it's that, uh, we talk so much, Peter Thiel talks about zero to one, but sometimes the hardest part is like zero to mm. point one, right, and, and getting, the, getting the ship to just lift off a little bit. And, and this is where it mitigates it. So I'll wrap it up by telling you what Steve Blank mm. suggests when looking for or considering a venture studio. Point number one, and I would say this is the one that I've noticed the most is most relevant, is the studio run by a former founder or does it have former founders as its full-time employees? I think it's very easy to find um, high net worth or people from the financial services world that are setting these things up, that have the money to be able to, to set it up, but don't necessarily have the entrepreneurial mindset to be able to incubate these these ventures along the way so look for ones that are run by uh, entrepreneurs the next one is what percentage of equity are they asking mm. for if you think about it you know these studios are taking 30 to 80 percent is is what uh, his numbers say um, i've seen 25 to 50 or so but you have to remember that if that studio takes 50 percent or more you are not a founder. <laughs> yeah, you're an employee. You are an yeah. employee. You are an employee, right? So, um, very interesting conundrum to come into. Like, um, how much? How much is losing your agency as a founder worth to you? In you know, shortcutting the fundraising side of things third is do you want a studio with specific expertise Mm. you know do you come from a specific domain do you have some specific shortcomings or lack of experience in particular areas that you can you can find it useful and then last but not least do they have enough funding Um, because oftentimes they are startups too um i would say this is the the challenge that i faced last year where i was building a venture studio for a team in the uk and they just weren't able to get the all the funds they needed to together to incubate enough Mm. ventures so do that do they have enough funding and then more importantly do they have enough funding for you because if they're taking a reasonable chunk of equity you need to make sure that uh, you're getting what you would get uh in the wild or or more in return but I think it's a to me this was just a really interesting topic um, considering and I think you know you and I are both pretty fascinated with the history the the kind of historical background of the startup mm. scene in Germany and the role that uh, um, companies like rocket internet played in that equation and they're not really around in the the true sense nope. anymore and I think this whole idea of like venture building Uh, the cut with the copycat model, at least had gone by, gone the way of the wind, but actually we're now seeing this kind of Renaissance of this type of model, uh, cranking out a lot of ventures, especially here in Berlin, where, um, I seem to see a new venture builder, venture studio popping up, uh, pretty damn frequently.
0: (laughs) No, and I think maybe one thing where I might want to give some pushback so steve blank is saying the venture studios should be headed by a founder now for me that would be not the most important thing for me it's important that the venture studio is headed by somebody with a very strong or even that has a lot of power within the organization so, and so what i sometimes see is that if companies create a new venture studio they will hire somebody from McKinsey or from Amazon to lead it because they think, oh, yeah, these people know what tech is. But then these people are outsiders. And Mm -hmm. my experience, at least, is that venture studios often become actually quite political battlefields. So you might actually have to fight for your funding. Business units might give you pushback. And if you then do not have a leader that can fight these political battles, meaning somebody that has the kind of connections within the organization to build uh, support, you might really be in trouble. So for me, actually, the more important thing would be is the venture studio being led by somebody who has a strong political position within the organization.
1: It's interesting you say that I'm going to push back at your pushback, (laughs) (laughs) which is um, you have to remember that, you know, one of the key roles of a venture studio is to actually ideate and then, you know, and and validate and decide what they're going to invest in. Then the founders come in. I would argue that if you don't have your leadership team with the right entrepreneurial mindset Mm -hmm. and the right entrepreneurial toolkit um, back to your bias topic earlier is you start getting, which I think happens a lot with people that haven't been through um, executing bad ideas yeah. you know, or even assessing ideas over and over and over again that, you know, you get someone on the top of the, the hierarchy and he's like, Oh, I want to do this because this is cool. And I read about this somewhere. Let's do this. <clears throat> and if you don't have the framework behind it, and you don't have the way to actually turn an yeah. idea either into action or to to bury it six feet under. Um, you get you get a venture studio that can be pretty. Damn no, but fair. there
0: I actually would agree with you. So if I say you need to have some powerful, it doesn't mean uh, hire the CFO to run the venture studio because then I think yeah. <laughs> you're set for disaster because CFOs are very smart, good people in in playing the corporate game, but. As you said, they don't have the entrepreneurial mindset and toolkit to run a venture studio. So there, I would fully agree. Mm-hmm. But so I think that the challenge is, if you want to find a good leader for this venture studio, it needs to—I would say—it needs to be somebody from inside, but that has the entrepreneurial mindset. So it, he or she needs mm-hmm. to have both, uh, which might be. Quite rare, but at least in my experience, and, and I interact quite a lot with corporates, you have that kind of people within your organization. You will need to search for them, um, but but they are out there. And if you can select them, then I think that that's really a very fundamental condition for venture studio con- success. I would say.
1: Yeah, I would say within the corporate context, it, it's a little bit different. But in the corporate context, actually, it's a lot different, right? Because you start dealing with. Um, as soon as you're building ventures within the corporate context, now those ventures are subjected to corporate no. governance, right? So now you have to go through the procurement systems and the the payment systems and all of you get str- kind of uh, encumbered by the bureaucracy of the the mothership. So oftentimes the corporate venture studios will happen, you know, in an external. Uh, organization yeah, okay. that's, that's yeah. separate from it. I would say, the, you know, the one thing Steve Blank doesn't mention in here that I found from my experience that if looking for a venture studio, think about governance. Yeah. And, you know, this was something that I worked really heavily on last year when I was building one in uh, in Berlin is how do you keep this separate, mm-hmm. right? So you want to make sure that the venture building side of things is in a separate not only unit, but arguably organization Mm. itself than the funding side of things, right? And this will help to mitigate those biases and conflicts of interest that the venture team ideates, validates, come up with a concept. And then you take that to the other, the fund side of things where they go through a more traditional VC type analysis to determine whether they want to capitalize that business or not. And by separating it, then you kind of have a little more uh, agency and yeah. autonomy and you can kind of put the entrepreneurs in one side and then you can put the finance people that are really kind of assessing investment in the in yeah. the other and i think that's um you know i don't know exactly how rocket works in in that regard because obviously it was a hugely hugely successful one but i think as we're looking at it uh, moving forward there's a lot of complex requirements in these things and you know, for that reason, I don't think we've had, uh, although my friend Felix recently sold his for nine figures in Mm -hmm. Berlin, um, there haven't been too many, um, that have really shown signs of success. And I include BCG McKinsey and the, uh, the other big players, they just have not churned out many great successes as a result. Okay. Beat that topic to (laughs) death. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Um, let's, uh, Let's end it on uh, on a happy note and give me something that made you chuckle recently.
0: Yes, and actually, it's something that I that popped up on my LinkedIn very recently, and and it made me laugh. And, and it's an academic paper that made me laugh. That that's quite quite rare, but <laughs> it made me laugh. It speaks
1: volumes. <laughs> and so
0: the title is actually "How is ChatGPT's behavior changing over time." And it's uh, authored Hmm. by people from the University of Stanford and Berkeley. uh, So published recently, uh, open source. And what they actually have done is analyzing the performance of GPT 3.5. So the a bit older model already and GPT-4 over time. So they uh, did some kind of tasks in GPT 3.5 and GPT-4 in March. And they did the same tasks again in June. And so task you have to think about, they asked it some mathematical problems like, is this a prime number, yes or no? Uh, They asked it some sensitive questions to see, is it willing to answer yes or no? They asked it to generate some codes and to do some visual reasoning. And quite surprisingly, they found out that GPT-4 is getting more stupid. (laughs) so they are actually the humanity is saved yeah, yeah. amazing <laughs> so on a number of dimensions actually gpt4 is significantly performing worse in june than in march so actually they find that this system seems to get worse instead of better which of course is triggering quite some questions because imagine that you have now started integrating gpt4 in all kinds of applications where for your decision making you're relying on gpt4 in all kinds of apps actually what you are facing is the problem that your decision making might actually getting worse over time instead of better and to be honest this this paper also kind of confirms my own anecdotal experience where I have to say that over time when I look at the output that GPT-4 is generating in terms of writing texts, it, it's it's getting more disappointing. And initially I was thinking it's, it's just because our expectation level has been changing. Of course, at the first time, when you see GPT creating this text out of nowhere, it, you're totally amazed. And so I was thinking, yeah, I'm just now my my expectation level is increasing, but actually this paper tends to show, no, there is a kind of um, observable uh, quality uh, lowering in GPT-4, uh, which I found quite amazing. And at the same time as a 45 year old, I was very <laughs> comfortable that I'm not the only one facing cognitive decline over time. <laughs> Apparently, even AI systems uh, tend to get worse. That's where you went with
1: it, It's funny. I went a totally different direction in my head. I, I kept thinking of like, there's some weird metaphor for humanity, you know, as we talk about the dumbing down of society. No. but in, in, fi- in five years, uh, GPT is just going to be doom scrolling, TikTok and playing video games and has lost interest in all <laughs> human knowledge.
0: <laughs> no, but uh, of course, the big question now is why? And I don't think there is yet an mm-hmm. answer. Uh, something that, that I found interesting, again, uh, when I uh, listened to this daily podcast, they were mentioning that so um, you have these hobby writers. And so what do they do? Uh, for instance, you have Game of Thrones. And these hobby writers, they write kind of uh, new stories in the Game of Thrones universe, but they use their own imagination. They let people fight with each other that never fought with each other, or they let people marry with each other that never married with each other. And actually, these people have been very upset because they noticed that their content has been integrated in these GPT models. and. So, if you ask GPT questions about fictional characters from Games of Thrones that have been written by the hobby writers, they will be able to give answers, which make clear that it has incorporated that kind of um, uh, knowledge. And so these people were very pissed off. And so, what they have started to do is to simply create websites where they publish a lot of bullshit, but simply (laughs) gitterish to kind of mislead the GPT Mm -hmm. system. So, they are actually trying Mm -hmm. to kind of create a lot of uh, noise on the web on the web to actually uh, misinform the GPT system, and so maybe it's this kind of actions that are actually contributing to uh, the decline of GPT four. That mm-hmm. could be one of the explanations that just people I don't know are just putting on the web the the wrong mathematical mm-hmm. calculations, and in that way you're actually kind of mm-hmm. uh, putting GPT four in a different direction
1: it's you know you you talked about kind of a, a a deliberate approach but i i think of the maybe the the non deliberate yeah. approach right like you know you you think about how bad grammar has gotten yeah. over the years right like i mean is 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 gpt eventually going to uh you know start screwing up your and your and start writing lmfao and lol and like you know really because if you think that it's it's pulling from all of human knowledge, you know there is some, there are some I wouldn't say ubiquitous, but there are some common errors that exist with within human knowledge that a, a large portion of the the, the population get yeah. wrong, you know like it's obviously consuming that information yeah. too, right so
0: no, yeah. or think about uh, if, you're right, if you're using GPT friends to write LinkedIn messages, which to be honest, to some extent, mm-hmm. I do. It has a very specific kind of writing style for LinkedIn. And so then if you Mm -hmm. just copy-paste it in your LinkedIn, you're kind of reinforcing it because more and more it will see this writing Mm -hmm. style and will connect it with LinkedIn. So it will only reinforce. And in that way, you will get the quality is is going down because you kind of continuously reinforce the same writing style and, and that might have huge implications.
1: Right, right hmm that's an interesting topic let's uh let's see how that one (laughs) goes all right i'm going to uh wrap things up with a little a little game i found a a blog that uh it was just so up my alley (laughs) i just couldn't help but uh but share it um and it's the truick start truick startup savant blog and uh what they do from time to time is they identify strange yet successful startups so i'm gonna i'm gonna read you a couple very short pitches of startups and you tell me if you would invest if you like the idea or you don't okay (laughs) first startup it's from new york it's called i do now i don't so josh opperman started this company after his fiance of three months ended up leaving him he was able to take the devastating feeling he experienced and transform it into a successful startup. I do now I don't is a Craigslist kind of market online marketplace for fine jewelry for those who no <laughs> longer have a need for their <laughs> rings and people and and he identified that people get a much better price if they're uh, from marketplace than they would if they attempted to return the ring to the store from which they mm. bought it. So he turned his misery into a successful startup. What do no, you think? This, yeah, this sounds next.
0: like a great idea.
1: <laughs> I yeah. thought so too. I thought so too. Let's uh, you know, turn that frown upside down <laughs> with uh, financial success. I okay, if you come two. up with
0: that, I would like it actually. So
1: oh. I, I like it too. I think and I imagine that's there's probably a pretty decent Tam Sam yeah. song for that, right? Pretty good market <laughs> size, <laughs> especially these days. <laughs> Um, All right. Number two, this one actually raised money off Shark Tank. So I'm biasing you a little bit. Um, It's called Potato Parcel and it comes out of Denton, Texas. So the idea of Potato Parcel is pretty simple. You send a whole potato to someone with a unique message written on top of it. That's That's it. it. okay <laughs> That's I it. Was you take a potato, <laughs> write a message on it and you send it to someone <laughs> yeah,
0: no? i I'm, I'm less uh I'm less convinced by this one than the first one
1: <laughs> well, uh Mr. Wonderful Kevin O'Leary, who's one of the the kind of most well known sharks and probably the most cutthroat of the bunch and very rational um yeah. He he put 50 grand into it, and they're already up to uh, 25K MRR and growing. (laughs) How many potatoes do you have to sell to make 25K a month? (laughs) I thought it was pretty impressive. All right, third one, third of four, and we'll wrap this up. Um, This one's out of Australia. It's called Join My Wedding. (laughs) So you ever been to an Indian wedding, Dries? I have. Uh, and it's amazing. First time I got to pet an elephant actually (laughs) at a a wedding. Um, but these weddings are like, you know, extravagant week long kind of, uh, parties, um, crazy expensive, you know, they can cost hundreds of of thousands of of euros. So join my wedding is a a website where people can sign up to attend Indian weddings as guests and just pay a, a small cost to do so. And their whole value prop is it's a great way to experience a different culture, meet new people, have a ton of fun while doing it while the wedding party, which I think is pretty traditional is supposed to be big. And historically would bring in the whole community and the whole village. They get to have their big broad celebration.
0: What do you think? No, that's again, an interesting one. I can see pain points from both sides of the market being solved here. So
1: you may have to. You may have to buy your outfit, (laughs) but um, I can attest that it is a damn good time. All right, last one. I wanted to throw this in of the many, many that I read um, because it's one that uh, people that live in Berlin will be familiar with. It's called BrewDog. And uh, if you're into the Mm microbrewery scene, there are multiple BrewDog breweries uh, here in Berlin. Uh, They are originally out of the UK. Founders from Northern UK, Scotland, and um, I won't tell you how much money that they've raised yet. But um, the the interesting thing is BrewDog does some very creative concepts, including uh, making an ale that is 55% ABV. So imagine that that is stronger than whiskey, vodka, gin. Um, and uh, so they made this 110 proof beer uh sold it for 20,000 dollars a oh. bottle and they they served it the bottle was uh, embedded in a taxidermied roadkill so some animal that got run over on the road <laughs> they taxidermized it put the bottle in it put 55% beer in it and sold it for 20 grand a pop what do you think i i like i that? believe in that
0: I think the and I find it a bit sad but there is increasingly a kind of rich elite in the world that has simply so much money that they just want to spend it on the most crazy extravagant stuff out there and I think these guys perfectly play into that market so in that way I can really see their and and their <laughs> their contribution margins will be big well, so uh, I can really <laughs> see true that. I know. I hate to say
1: it. I might be one of those people. <laughs> but, uh, on a, <clears throat> on an impulse last year, I uh, I got on the waiting list to buy the Tesla Giga beer. Okay. Are you? No, did, you he, did I didn't you hear, hear about that? So it was uh, it was part of Tesla launching their factory in Berlin. Which God, I know some people are going to hate me for this, <laughs> but, but I, I thought it was it was kind of a novelty. I wanted to gift it to a friend who who drove a, a Tesla but i spent uh 180 euros on yeah, two Yeah, okay, beers. okay. But
0: that's a different number, yeah. not. It's not
1: it's not yeah. 20 grand. But that's an expensive fucking yeah, beer. Yeah, of course. Right? But, but it's a gift. Uh, I, I didn't even open it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they they procured a, a Berlin brewery to make yeah. these these beers and they put them in bottles that kind of look like the Giga truck. Pretty slick. Yeah slick looking things but um anyways brew dog no but i think it's 250 exactly, million
0: exactly the same like with this apple vision glass thing i think it will be a success mm-hmm. because there are so many rich people that will just want to buy this four thousand dollar apple vision thing because for them it will not matter and it will be huge status symbol Um, so i think apple should actually have asked eight thousand dollars because I think still people, these people would have still bought it. It would not make any difference.
1: Well, I mean, I'm the jerk off that spent 600 euros on the Apple <laughs> AirPods yeah. pro, but, but it was a good <laughs> investment. I love them. I love them. But, uh, yeah, anyways, BrewDog, of course they do actual breweries yeah. and stuff. And, uh, even doing their crazy things, they have raised 250 well, million euros to date well, and are, uh, uh, one of the fastest growing breweries in in the world. So those are just a few of the crazy startup ideas. I would love it if uh, anyone listening has some, uh, some ridiculous stories about those types of things as well, because I think it's, um, you know, being in this world, I certainly, I think you do too, especially being at Veja see a lot of uh, uh, venture concepts um, every month every year tons and tons of different ones and some are seem so fucking ridiculous and uh and turn out to be a gem some seem like a home run and are catastrophically bad in the end although i have to say in my um, courses
0: sometimes i also hear very fascinating ones maybe let me tell you one i I think i never told you mm -hmm. it was a group of students and what they built was a business model where instead of selling your house you would organize a tombola or a, a lottery. And mm-hmm. then they would just kind of give the house to the, the one that won the lottery. But so it would be instead of you selling your house to one person for like, I don't know, 400,000 euros. So they would organize a lottery and you could buy lottery tickets for like 10 euros. And so if 4,000 people would have, uh, yeah, no, uh, 40,000 people would buy a ticket,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you would have your 400,000 euros. And then they would kind of just give it to the one that won the lottery, so in the end you would you would still get your money for your house, but there would be one person out of the forty thousand that gets the house for um, for forty euros. I was. I found that a very intriguing business model. <laughs>
1: you find that intriguing until your neighbor's house <laughs> is in one of those lotteries. <laughs> You're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, that's uh,
0: that's that's a good point. Maybe, but I, at uh, least e-
1: even those one euro houses in Italy come with a lot of stipulations <laughs> attached to them. Yeah, right, like...
0: yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I like the creativity. Awesome. Let's say it like that.
1: Uh, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, it just reminds me that, yeah, devil's in the details <laughs> and all these things. But Driefs, as usual, super, super fun. Um, you know, I, I feel like each time we do one of these, I, I I am reminded to say we need to do them more often because the, the current topics, uh, my learnings in your scholarship um, are uh, always, always a treat. So super great to have this episode once again. Yes, thanks all right and yeah everyone that's listening as usual you've heard it before if you like the episode um feel free to like comment subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service of course or on youtube as well um until next time this next bye. time. bye